so much for having me how are you i'm good was that was that a hype enough intro Uh, you are so dope thank you so much for that Uh, you're welcome makes me feel good listen you said that the dr tracy boyd never gets old i'll be honest with you it it hasn't really dawned on me yet you know i just graduated two weekends ago with my juris doctorate so um, it really hasn't grown on me yet so it hasn't even sunk in yeah 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 so yeah (laughs) But I'm so happy to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Well, and I meant every word I said. I am a huge fan. I think it's just amazing what you're doing. And really anybody who, you know, finds their purpose and has passion and isn't afraid to stand up and speak up for what they believe in. I just hats off to you. I just think it's great. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I love a good success story. So how about you just tell me a little bit about all of your achievements, everything you've been doing and where you're at and maybe a little bit of where you came from, just all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, I'll just kind of start from the beginning. I am a resident of Jackson, Tennessee. I grew up here in Jackson. I went to school here and I graduated in high school in 2012. Yeah, I am young. I'm still very young. Oh, you're <laughs> um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I graduated high school in 2012. Um, and then I had the opportunity to move off and attend Tennessee State University, um, where I started studying social work. And then I had this amazing um, transition where I attended National Paralegal College, um, where I was studying legal studies. And so every course that a lawyer would take in law school, those are the courses that I was taking at National Paralegal College. I was taking administrative law. I was taking environmental law. I was taking criminal law, constitutional law, all of these different courses in law that um, a typical attorney um, would have taken in law school. And so I really grabbed my interest 
into the American legal system um, while I was at Tennessee State. And, you know, I had the opportunity to intern for a criminal court judge um, out of Nashville by the name of Judge Monty Watkins. Um, and he's the, um, he was the only um, African-American um, male judge on the criminal court bench in Davidson County um, at the time that I had the opportunity to intern and clerk for him. And Heather, I saw so many people coming in and out of the courtroom knowing nothing about their legal rights and responsibilities. You know, they would waive their preliminary hearings, which, you know, I always teach people all the time. You never waive your preliminary hearing. That is the most important hearing of your case because it's a hearing to establish probable cause. Do these police officers or does the state have enough evidence against you to charge you with this crime? So you never waive that preliminary hearing. And I saw so many people, um, whether they were poor, uh, poor people or people of color or white people, it was just so many people coming in and out of the courtroom, not knowing anything about their legal rights and responsibilities. And so I wanted to make it my duty. I wanted to make, I wanted uh, to make it uh, my obligation to really teach people about the American legal system, the American, uh, you know, laws and, you know, how they are impacted by those laws. And so I uh, partnered with Belmont College of Law uh, with former United States Attorney General. He served under Bush's at President Bush's administration, um, Alberto Gonzalez. He is now the dean of Belmont you know, uh, College of Law. Partnered with um, Alberto and had this amazing idea to launch a two-week summer program for young people. So middle and high school students are coming on to this college campus learning about their legal rights and responsibilities, right? So one of the things that, you know, one of the things that I had an issue with was young people entering our criminal justice system at the rate that they were at, at the rate that they are still currently going. And it, that rate is astronomically high. And so um, I wanted to position myself, Heather, in a position where I could stand in the gap to prevent young people from ever having to enter into this criminal justice system. And so that was amazing opportunity. I started there um, with, with my work into the legal field, the legal system. Um, and then I launched what's called the Law and Leadership School, which is a middle and high school, um, you know, engaging young people in um, in a in, in a in depth study of their uh, of their legal rights and responsibilities. So, in addition to learning their core academic subjects, reading, math, science, history, language arts, all of that, we take this in depth study of the American criminal justice system. So they're learning criminal law, they're learning constitutional law, they're learning um, civil law, and how to um, how those interactions in a courtroom work. And so here I am <laughs> now back in Jackson, Tennessee. I'm trying to kind of wrap it up because I know you got some more questions for me. Um, but here I am back in Jackson, Tennessee, where um, just like I said earlier in, in our show, that um, two weekends ago, I graduated with my Juris Doctorate, um, also with a Master's in Educational Law. And so I really specialize in teaching 
people about their constitutional rights um, as far as, um, you know, encounters with police officers. Um, you know, they may have any type of, they may have disputes, whether it may, whether that be landlord tenant disputes, whether that's a juvenile family crisis dispute. Um, you know, I, I really teach a lot of people about, um, you know, options and, and, and legal terms and, and legal things in that realm. So. That is great. And you know what? It's, it's funny because we've taken a lot of the same courses in my a uh, bachelor's degree is in legal studies. The difference oh, wow. is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the difference is that you went the Juris Doctorate route and mm-hmm. I went the master's degree route. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I got my bachelor's in uh, legal studies and then my master's in criminal justice. So, but okay. I think it's really great um, what you're doing and you're right. It's just so important for people to understand their rights and to understand the criminal justice system. And it's such a a big problem that people don't. And a perfect example of that is the Billy Moore case. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Billy Moore was, um, at the time he's, well, he lives here in Jackson, Tennessee, him and his stepson back in 2018, they were charged with first degree murder. Um, for the killing of, of, of a young man here in Jackson. Um, the thing is, Billy Moore was at the time running for city council. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the time he was running for city council, um, his stepson uh, had gotten, gotten into an altercation with some guys um, in a neighborhood uh, known as Middle, Middle, Avenue, uh, Middle Avenue here in East Jackson. Well, he called Billy Moore over um, to the house to kind of help him get his sister from in the area, get the young man's sister from in the area. And during an altercation between the stepson and a a man by the name of Greg Goff, and I'm only mentioning these names because, of course, it's public records. And so you can go out and, you know, research all of this information that I'm speaking. But they're the facts of the case. um, Yes, they're absolutely fact. And so Greg Goff, Um, Got into an altercation with the stepson. And at the time, Billy Moore, he broke up the fight. Well, when he broke up this fight, he he dropped his cell phone or the cell phone slipped out of his jacket pocket. And he didn't know that it slipped out of his jacket pocket. And so they left the scene. Well, when they left, they eventually got a phone call back over to the house uh, saying, hey, we got your cell phone. Come back over here and get it. Well, when they pulled up back, and this is verified by the court records as well, that a phone call was made during this time. And so when they got back over uh, to the scene to pick up the phone, they send the young kids in the house immediately. And immediately they start shooting at the vehicle that Billy Moore and his stepson is in. Well, here's the thing. During the preliminary hearing, you had a bunch of witnesses that were for the state getting up on the stand that all, some of their testimony was similar, but a lot of their testimony was different. And you can hear it. You can see it. So I dug into these transcripts. I looked into these transcripts. I was looking for inconsistencies in witness statements because something just wasn't adding up. 
And so you had investigator Robert, uh, Robert Groves, who during the preliminary hearing said that, yes, when he arrived on the scene, that he found Billy Moore's cell phone um, laying next uh, to Tavoris Bates' body. Um, Tavoris Bates is the victim in this case, um, lying next to Tavoris Bates' body. And um, that confirmed that Billy Moore's phone was at the scene. And that was the reason why they went back over there to, to the scene, which was to retrieve that phone. Well, no one had a gun. No one seen anybody else shooting but Billy Moore. Um, you know, there were, I believe, 22 uh, shell casings found. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm not really kind of familiar uh with the with the shell casings facts at this time because it was so long ago um however um there was no ballistics done there was no there was just really a whole lot of prosecutorial liberties taken away in this case and it was just really 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 crazy um for billy and and his stepson so here they are sitting in jail for two years uh for a crime that they did not commit um, you had the witnesses saying that they were actually at the time getting ready to go to church. However, when I called the church to verify if uh, if a church event was happening um, that particular day, that particular night, the church told me no. So that confirmed to me that they also lied on the stand and that the prosecutors didn't even want to bother, you know, um, you know, discussing that or looking into that. Here's the biggest thing about this case, Heather. The biggest issue that we had in the Billy Moore case was Greg Goff, after the shooting, the next day after the shooting, he called his cousin um, on the phone. His cousin was recording the conversation. And you sent me that audio, so I'm going to go ahead and interject here and let our listeners hear that conversation. It Oh, 
Wow. In this recording, what you hear is Greg Goff confessing to the shooting. He's confessing, telling his cousin, I meant to shoot Billy Moore. I meant to kill Billy Moore. And I'm going to keep putting it off on them until they find out that it was me. And I'm telling you that, Heather, verbatim. And the uh, the, the state ignored this confession tape. And so what happened during the trial was the jury found um, the stepson, Corey, found him not guilty on all charges. Rightfully so. He didn't have a gun. He didn't shoot anybody. He didn't have the intent to kill or shoot anybody. Rightfully so. But then we get over to Billy Moore's case and the jury finds Billy Moore not guilty on first degree murder, not guilty on second degree murder, not guilty on manslaughter. Uh, I mean, yeah, not guilty on uh, involuntary manslaughter or for, uh, or voluntary manslaughter or the facilitation of those acts. But the jury did get hung up on reckless homicide. Now, while I was um, in the in the courtroom during the trial, I could kind of see and tell from the jury that they wanted to keep going. They wanted to keep going to find Billy not guilty. But there was one juror, um, and I hate to identify her like this, but it was a white older lady on the jury who the judge asked a, a very specific question to her. Was, is your 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 plea or your your verdict that of yours and she was a little confused and ended up blurting out in court your honor i think we are hung and that right there kind of let us know that okay this was the juror who probably had her foot down because you know you can't anything can happen um back there in that room when they're back there, you know, deliberating and coming to a final determination of a guilty verdict or not guilty verdict. Anything can go down back there in discussion. We don't know what they're talking about. We don't know what they're back there considering other than the evidence that was presented inside the courtroom. And so, and so here we are um, with this uh, reckless homicide. Um, The DA uh, General Lee Sparks was very cocky um, during this trial. You would oftentimes hear him say things like, oh, I feel very confident about this, or I feel really good about this. And here we are on verdict day. He failed to meet that burden of proof in front of 12 jurors and two alternates when he said that he had the, he had the evidence to prove first degree murder. Now, because he can't go back and charge Billy Moore on first degree murder, here we are now, Billy Billy Moore is now being charged um, with reckless homicide. They are wanting to pursue the charges of reckless homicide, which, as I said before the last trial, Heather, 
it's going to be very hard for them to prove reckless homicide because they're going to have to prove that Billy had the intent of going over there and shooting up a, a neighborhood. And he acted so recklessly that, you know, um, it, it, it killed someone in that act. And that's not the case whatsoever. And that's going to be proven and uh, that's going to be proven. And the reason, one of the reasons why I say that, Heather, is because during the trial, the judge let in the um, self-defense and necessity argument. He allowed Billy to use the self-defense argument and informed the jury during jury instructions that, you know, hey, this is something that you have to consider he had to he had the right to self uh, to 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 defend himself and so if he had the right to defend himself how did he act how did he act recklessly and so that's going to be something that you know that's left up to the courtroom one of the things that i told you in one of our previous discussions is i am not a lawyer that practices in the courtroom and so it's not my job to prove guilt or innocence it's my job to prove whether or not someone's due process of law or constitutional rights are being violated. And in this case, Billy Moore's constitutional rights were violated, not only by the court, but even by his criminal defense attorneys, Alex Camp, uh, who was the last attorney on this case, but um, even the, 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 the Guinea, the first attorneys he had on this case, Billy was requesting discovery information to try to prepare for trial. And, you know, they were denying him this discovery, not the courts, but his own attorney telling him, no, let's not use that. Let's not use this tape in court because it can hurt you. And Billy was not having that. So Billy went through, I believe, two or three. Uh, he went through two attorneys before he um, was appointed Alex uh, Kemp to represent him in the court. And, you know, it was an amazing outcome for us. I'll say that much. It was an amazing outcome. Um, but I, I, I really want to highlight you know, one of the things I talked to you about um, before, you know, you and I, we, we talked about this in previous discussion, is the power of the prosecutor. The prosecutor has so much power um, in, 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 in criminal cases. They decide who to charge. They decide when to charge these people. If they're going to uh, prosecute a case, if they're not going to prosecute a case, what evidence to consider. And that is just, it's just, they're too powerful. And one thing that I can tell you going through law school is when you talk about fighting for justice, justice is not taught in the classroom. Justice is taught in the community. Justice is taught out there in the field, working with people and really administering um, justice. So that's that's a little uh, synopsis of the Billy Moore case. And, you know, I can keep going on and on forever, but I'll love for I'll, I'll love to just answer questions. <laughs> no, it's I, it's great. I mean, it really is. Justice is about accountability and accountability real justice and real accountability is across the board. It treats all people the same, regardless of race or status or, you know, how much money they have. Um, it should be just 
standard across the board, the same for everybody. And you don't see a lot of that. I, I feel like it's so imbalanced. It's just, it, it's Absolutely. Terrible. Heather, when we ask for, a lot of people um, ask me sometimes, when, when you say justice, when you say justice for such and such, or, you know, justice for um, Anthony Jones, or justice for Billy Moore, justice for the, what are you, what, are, what is justice? What are you asking for? What I'm asking for when I say justice for an individual, I'm asking for accountability. <laughs> That's what I'm asking for. Yes. I'm asking for accountability and I'm asking for um, respect. I'm asking for you to treat this individual the same way that you would treat any other individual. If this was your family member, if this was someone that was dear and close to you, would you go for the mats? Would you prosecute these people to the fullest? You know, even during a pandemic, Heather, here in Jackson, we are arresting people for driving on suspended license. Um, I was looking um, on our records, um, in our records the other day, and saw how someone was arrested and literally booked into the jail for not being able to show proof of her license. Not the fact that she didn't have one, but the fact that she didn't have it on her in, a, in, in an effort to be able to produce it if she was ever pulled over. She was booked into jail for that. Those things are crazy. And, and those are the things that we're just trying to highlight and, and really just fight against. Well, and it's cases like that, that you have to wonder why, what was it about her? Now, I don't know anything about her demographics, so I can't judge based on that. Yeah. But, you know, what is it about certain people that makes them a target versus other people that can seem to get away with literally murder? Well, it's literally this idea of profiling, the art of profiling, if I can put it in that sense. You know, it's, and why is it like that? We don't know. And we'll probably never know because no one will ever just come out and say, oh, I'm coming up to you and I'm going to be aggressive to you because you're a black person. And I know that because you're a black person, you're going to be aggressive towards me. It's because of these social constructions that society has put into place. When you hear about black people, what are the social constructions uh, attached to black people? Lazy, aggressive, um, dumb, stupid, they don't have money, they always want something. What are the social constructions labeled to white people? Rich, powerful, um, you know, financially stable. Um, those are things that, you know, um, that a lot of people take into consideration when they come into contact with um offenders when police officers come in uh, contact with offenders they they look at that oh let me be careful i'm pulling over a black person let me put my guard up um versus going out north and be pulling over an older white lady uh where you can just easily get out the car and and go up to the car and start talking to her you know I, and it, it's just crazy it's a number of things that are at play um you know, when trying to ascertain why is it when a police officer pulls over a black person, it's more aggressive 
or the the situation can become more aggressive than it would be if a police officer pulled over a white person. Right. And there are variables, other variables that also go into play, but obviously the very first one is going to be on site is going to be rape. Unfortunately, but it's true. (laughs) I think it's a conversation I've had with a lot of people, a lot of friends and, um, you know, I think it's just, it, it, it's a fact. I mean, how can we deny that? How can anybody deny that? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I'm fighting right now is this grand jury process where, um, you know, a few Tuesdays ago, we, I was on the air and I was talking about the grand jury process and I was talking to, about the dirty little secrets of the grand jury process and how this process is so one-sided. Um, You know, it's literally a prosecutor going inside of a room with 12 jurors and presenting a case to them, painting this person to be the worst person in the world in efforts to get this indictment returned. And it's so crazy because although we have the right to a criminal defense attorney, although we have the right to an attorney to represent us in a court of law, guess what? Not during that grand jury process, you don't. The role of a defense counsel in Tennessee grand jury proceedings is minimal. Very minimal. They they don't sit in on grand jury processes and they can't object and rebut to anything that a criminal defense attorney may say about their client. In these grand jury proceedings, they're able to use any and every piece of evidence. I'm looking right here in my notes, Heather, um, and I posted this earlier on Facebook where I was like, man, this right here is really some bullshit. Um, Tennessee laws are crazy and I just don't get it. But in Tennessee, the grand jury can hear, and I'm just, because I can't find it off the top of my head, so I'm just going to just say it. Um, The grand jury can hear any and all types of evidence that's hearsay, that's evidence that has been obtained illegally, and evidence that also may be prejudicial. That is crazy. If you will look at the criminal practice and procedures of Tennessee, chapter nine, section seven, you would see that it says that the grand jury can hear any type of evidence. And that's very problematic because that violates constitutional rights. That violates even the, yeah, that violates constitutional rights. The thing that I'm fighting here in Madison County is not only that portion of grand jury, because that's grand jury reform across the board, across America. Every, everybody, excuse me, everybody is fighting for grand jury reform on that level in regards to that. What I am fighting for here locally, and this is very huge, and I really don't understand why this does not have a lot of more people outraged. What I have discovered is the grand jury, the DA's office here is lining the grand jury up against the wall, taking them into a room, 
sitting them down at a table and requiring them to return true bills on offenders. That's literally true bill, 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 without any evidence being presented to them, without the grand jury being able to, to question or properly investigate any of these crimes that they are in charge of investigating. That is very problematic. And the right to be charged only by indictment or presentment returned by the grand jury is a common law origin in this right. Um, and it's always been accorded here in Tennessee. The What I found about the grand jury process, Heather, is the grand jury is said to stand between the accuser and the accused. And it is not an agency of the district attorney or the court. Under our system, Heather, it is an agency of the government and it may act independently of the court and the district attorney. So when you have a district attorney that's taking these people into a room and requiring them to return true bills, that is a violation of constitutional rights and people's due process of law. Wow, that's deep. Have you, uh, I'm just curious, have you talked to the FBI and tried to get them involved in any, because wouldn't they be interested in constitutional uh, civil rights violations? Absolutely. So what I have done um, recently, um, as of today, <laughs> is I have launched a petition calling for several agencies to investigate in their respective investigative duties and powers um, the this process in this DA's office. So I have called on the United States Attorney General's office. I have called on the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. I have called on um, the Tennessee Board of Professional Responsibilities, as well as the Department of Justice to come in and investigate this process. This process is not something that I've just made up or or this these alleged practices aren't just something that I've made up. Two Tuesdays ago, Heather, I do um I go on the radio live here in Jackson every Tuesday, three o'clock. I'm on Thomas Media Kits 96, and we talk about issues here in Jackson. A former grand juror reached out and called in on the show while I was explaining these at very these very same um, facts to you about the grand jury process and said, Dr. Boy, I am so glad that you are talking about this because I want to let you know that here in Madison County, that is not how it works at all. She let uh, she informed us that she was a former grand juror. She informed us that how they line up against the wall and they are required to return uh, true bills without question. If they had a question that this, uh, if they had a question about a particular person, a lady will stick her head in the door and say, you can mark no bill because we don't have enough evidence for that. That is problematic. 
And so, yes, I have reached out to a number of agencies um, to get them to begin an immediate investigation into our grand jury process. I'm also calling um, for a halt um, in the grand jury proceedings regarding any type of criminal indictment. We this process does not need to continue moving forward, prosecuting or indicting offenders when we have an illegal practice going on. So pending this investigation, um, you know, all grand jury proceedings need to uh, really need to come to a stop right now. Really what I want to shoot for over the next couple of days and weeks to come is I really want to start teaching um, you know, whether that's going, you know, on Facebook Live or, you know, holding even some in-person sessions where I'm doing um, some master crash course sessions, teaching people about the grand jury process and their duties, because the grand jury does not understand their duties. They have the power to investigate they have the power to investigate crimes. They are not an agency of the district attorney or the courts. They are an agency of the government and they have the power to investigate on their own initiatives, on their own merits, on their own merits. If I, as a citizen of Jackson, Heather, was to write a complaint to the, to the foreman of the grand jury alleging a crime, guess what? That foreman has the power to investigate it. That foreman has the power to subpoena all of the witnesses that may be related to that matter and investigate that crime and return an indictment. Even and Listen, the United States Constitution does not require indictments. The United States Constitution does not require prosecutors to have indictments. That's up to the grand jury. And so if we can, over the next couple of weeks and months to come, really start reaching out to our local community and teaching them about the grand jury and their duties, I think we can have some really great outcome. But yes, going back to answering your questions, yes, we have, um, I have reached out to a number of agencies to try to um, get this investigation launched. Um, and today I have launched a petition on um, change.org um, calling for this investigation into the grand jury process. Also, if you follow me on Facebook, which is Tracy Boyd. <laughs> if you follow me on Facebook, I have also um, released an open letter to the Jackson Madison uh, to the Jackson City Council. So that's Mayor Conger and all um, councilmen and councilwomen in all District One through Nine. I've released an open letter to them, urging their support and um, and calling for this investigation as well. Um, and so those are a few things that we're doing. This is here. Here are the you, all of this is facts. <laughs> um, well, let, let me ask you this. Um, have you gotten any response from any of the agencies that you've reached out? to? Um, not currently. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I just reached out to I just started reaching out to them today because I wanted to make sure that the petition was up and available. 
Um, and so because the petition wasn't up, I didn't reach out to anyone. But, you know, um, I have started doing all of that today now that the petition is up and published. Listening to you talk about this, it reminds me of something. And I don't think I've been faced with something so big as this since what I'm about to tell you about. And it's interesting. It's, it's very interesting because, well, I'll just, I'll just tell you what it was. Back in like 2011, 2012, I think, I received an email, I think it was, uh, from an attorney from the Nashville area who, well, he had cancer and he was dying of cancer. So in his last few years or whatever he had left, he had made it his mission to have the Tennessee Constitution reformed. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> his name was John J. Hooker. And he came from a very prominent family. Uh, his father was a famous attorney. He was a you know famous attorney. They were friends with, well, to name <laughs> one big name, the Kennedys. Um, he had sued Bill Clinton. Um, and he was very big on accountability. He was he would sue politicians and judges and whoever basically, um, he would catch wind of, you know, taking favors, money, you know, payment, you know, just whatever. Um, he was somebody that, you know, if you got into a conversation with him, it was much like the conversation with you just now. Um, he would just, and he's so passionate mm -hmm. about it. He just, um, he would get on a roll and he, he just hit you with all this information <laughs> that leaves your head spinning. You're like, holy shit. So... <laughs> Um, I'm still processing, you know, I mean, I've you've told, you've told me this now a couple times and I, and I'm still trying to soak it all in, but basically his whole thing was that the Tennessee constitution was in violation of the U S constitution because for many other reasons, because I'm pretty sure he had a laundry list. But the I'm one sure. that I remember, yeah, yeah, the, the one that I remember the most that you know he was really passionate about was that the governor would appoint the judges, and that was something he wanted to see changed before he died. And I don't believe uh, he got very far with it. In fact. To be honest with you, I was at the time I was working for another attorney. And when I told her um, about what he was asking me, he wanted me to help him. He wanted me to be his paralegal mm -hmm. and work beside him through all this. And I feel kind of bad for not helping him. But at the time, I was still very concerned with not to say that I'm not anymore, but I was a lot more concerned at the time with my reputation in the legal community. I wanted to maintain relationships. And I remember my, the attorney that I was working for looking at me and saying, if you do this, you will 
probably be ostracized in the legal community. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want that. I was, I was pursuing my bachelor's degree and, you know, all this. And I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, if I get ostracized and, you know, all this work and getting my degrees for nothing, like I'm not, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm going to get blacklisted. I'm not going to be able to get a job. I'm not going to be able to do anything. Um, but the one thing that I remember thinking while I was listening to him talk, and this is why it reminded me of you was because I couldn't help but to think to myself that if he was able, if he was actually able to win this lawsuit against the state of Tennessee and the governor and all the people that he was talking about suing and, you know, and if he was actually able to have the Tennessee constitution rewritten and, and, you know, deemed as a violation, can you even imagine the backlash? Can oh, you yeah. even imagine the ridiculous, I mean, the, the, Oh my God, the overwhelming, the ridiculous amount of cases that would end up getting overturned, the, the, all the, all the people that would come forward and want their cases retried because they were heard and, and ruled by judges that were appointed and, you know, maybe were incompetent to hear the case to begin with. So did he ever, did he ever file anything in the courts? He, he did. He did. In fact, I remember seeing a picture of him in his last day standing on the Williamson County courthouse steps. And there was an article about the lawsuit that he had filed and, you know, just the, everything that I'm telling you. Um, there was an article about it from what I recall. And, um, but, you know, of course, nothing ever came of it, obviously. But, you know, so now listening to you talk and the reason reminded me of him and his venture, you know, was that I'm listening to you say all this and I'm thinking about the backlash. I'm thinking, you know, if not, I don't want to say if I want to be positive and, and, you know, when, <laughs> when you succeed and when this is rewritten and these practices are deemed civil violations and forbidden, then how many cases are going to have to be overturned and reheard or not just reheard, but put before the grand jury again? Millions. Ridiculous. Millions of cases. I mean, the court system can't even handle it. Listen, like there's no way. Even this investigation that I'm calling for now, Heather, is going to depending upon how far I get with it, it's going to overturn probably thousands, if not millions of cases. We're talking about from 1982 all the way up to this present day. This is a practice that has been going on, an illegal practice that has been going on since the, the district attorney, Jerry Woodall, has been in office, which was since 1982 here in Madison County. You know, Tracy, I could see it going back even further than that. I mean, we could even be talking about deceased prisoners, people who died in prison, whose families are going to demand that their case is put before the grand jury again. And if they find that there isn't probable cause, then you're talking about 
millions of dollars of lawsuits that the families could file against the system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we want to encourage. Because when we talk about reforming a system, when we talk about trying to reform and restructure this system, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You have to start hitting them where it hurts. One, you have to get educated. Again, going back to earlier in the podcast, you have to get educated about what your legal rights and responsibilities are. That's why my master's is also in educational law, because I really want to teach people about their rights. I, you know, their civic duties, their civic engagement to community. You, we, we talk about coming together and we talk about building community with each other. Well, you have to first start by getting educated about how that community is structured, how that community um, is built and designed. And as I, going back to our criminal justice system, as I always say, this criminal justice system, it isn't broken. It's operating and it's functioning to do exactly what it was designed to do, which was to keep poor black people oppressed. And that's exactly what's happening right now. And I agree. You know, Tracy, I support you. Everything that you've said. I just I think that if anybody can do this, it's you. I'm going to try to um, I really you your story about the the, the guy in. Um, Nashville fighting for the Tennessee Constitution to be uh, modified or, you know, taken out or, you know, stricken down, you know, that really encouraged me and lets me know that I can fight on a higher level, on an even higher level than where I am today. And so, yeah, I'm I'm really encouraged uh, by this and I can't wait to see what I'm able to do in this work that um, God has given me. <laughs> Amen. And that's what it is. It's a purpose. If, if it was, I mean, God has called you to do this. Uh, he's put it on your heart and he's given you the smarts to do it. He's given you the ability, all of the resources. I mean, just look at the people you're rubbing elbows with that you've already managed, you know, at such a young age and just fresh out of law school to have developed such major contacts in the legal industry. I'm just... I can't wait to see everything you're going to accomplish. Man, I am so excited about it. Thank you so much, Heather, for having me on your show. It's been so much fun, Tracy. Thank you for coming. So now I have a question for our listeners. Are you a justice warrior? If so, we'd like to hear about it. To be a guest on the Justice Warriors podcast, please send a short email explaining how you fight for justice to hmcinvestigations at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow the HMC Investigations and Fugitive Recovery Facebook page. And until next time, keep fighting for justice. Bye.
it is our duty to shine the light of truth, to bring justice to the restless souls whose lives were lost to their hands. Rise up against the evildoers of this world so that their souls may have peace. We will not surrender. 